Welcome back to Peds Ortho, the official podcast of Pozna. We have got a special episode tonight with some very special guests, some stars of the hip world, and we are going to be uh, giving you a little preview of the hip subspecialty day coming up this week in just a couple days now at the 2021 Pozna annual meeting in Dallas. So before we jump into the content, let's meet the panel. First up, Rachel Goldstein from CHLA is uh, one of our moderators or I should say is the moderator for tonight and one of the moderators for the live session later this week. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned, um, I'm hoping to put you and everyone else on the spot a little bit just to let the audience get to know everyone. So um, can you just uh, let everyone know where you are from in your your former life before CHLA and uh, maybe something interesting that the rest of us wouldn't know about the town or city? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Pre-CHLA life, I grew up in New Jersey in a super small town that uh, had two small ski areas. And then I moved to Boston for college, did med school and residency in New York, then moved to LA for fellowship, back to Boston for another fellowship, back to LA, settled in LA at CHLA. Fantastic. First author uh, whose content we'll be discussing, uh, Dr. Ernie Sink from HSS, probably doesn't need much of an introduction. But Dr. Sink, would you just sort of tell us some stuff we may not know? Where did you grow up and uh, anything surprising you can tell us about the place? Well, I grew up originally in Massachusetts, but I went to a ski racing high school in Vermont called Burke Mountain Academy, where the most exciting thing was to take a van, get one of the coaches to get us to take a van after dinner to get this ice cream that was only in Vermont called Ben and Jerry's. (laughs) (laughs) And that was in the eighties. My weekend job is actually at a ski coach, ski racing coach for one of those probably small ski areas that Rachel Goldstein spent time at. (laughs) Very cool. Next up from St. Louis children's Dr. Jeffrey Neppel. How are you? Great. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. So uh, can you give the audience just a little background on where you grew up? Sure. I grew up in a real small town, Iowa, a town called Templeton of about 300 people. A few people may have heard of Templeton. It's now a little more famous for its rye whiskey. Apparently it was Al Capone's favorite whiskey during Prohibition. So uh, since uh, I grew up there, they've really revived and it's now a big uh, industry available throughout the Midwest. (laughs) Bringing it back. Nice. And uh, last but not least, David Chong from Oklahoma University. How are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in the Chicago area, just outside western suburbs. Uh, And then I did most of my training down in the south. Ended up taking a job at University of Oklahoma. Been there for about six or seven years now. Perfect. With no further ado, let's jump into the the material. So the first abstract we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, by Dr. Sink. And it is entitled, Patients that Undergo Concomitant Hip Arthroscopy and Periacetabular Osteotomy Obtain Minimal Clinically Important Difference, or MCID, More Than Patients That Undergo Isolated PAO, an analysis of 231 hips. So, uh, very briefly... As we all know, it's controversial whether patients with hip dysplasia and labral tears or other uh, intraarticular pathology who need a PAO should also have a hip scope. In this study, the authors looked at 231 PAO patients, and overall, the results were excellent, and the vast majority of patients met the minimal clinically important difference for hip outcome scores, which means the PAOs made the patients better. The patients who had a hip scope in addition to their PAO 
we're slightly more likely to attain that minimal difference. So the authors advocate doing a scope at the time of PAO if there's a labral tear or other intraarticular pathology that can be addressed arthroscopically. So with that, I will uh, hand things over to our uh, moderator, Dr. Goldstein. Thank you. All right, Dr. Sink, I think we're all pretty excited to talk to you about this paper. How do Me you also. <laughs> Great. How do you decide who gets the scope and who doesn't? Well, first of all, I have to come up with a confession. We added patients, and then we looked at the PROMS, which was the Harris Hip score, and the IHOT separately per year. And when we did that and looked more granular, we did not find that the two groups were different, the scope PAO versus PAO groups, which either means that we're picking the right ones to answer your question, or it might not make a difference in the majority of people. So we tend to do a scope PAO on the MRI when we see a significant separation of the labrum from the end of the acetabulum, not a quote unquote tear that's called in the MRI, where you can actually see that it's detached from the bone or there's a really significant labral irritation or pathology, or perhaps in an older patient where you know they have some interarticular findings and you want to evaluate it. That's when we tend to schedule the scope PAO. But another factor is I receive a lot of patients from my hip arthroscopy colleagues, which I have a lot at HSS, and they, of course, come at it from the soft tissue perspective, and the patients come to me with a scope PAO, and after the 10 or 15 minutes of explaining that it may not make a difference, in the end, they just want their labrum repaired with a PAO. So sometimes we do it because it really doesn't increase the complications. It's just a little harder to schedule. Sometimes we do it just based on those factors alone, on the timing or where they fit in the schedule. And so about a third of the patients end up with a hip arthroscopy and a PAO, and about two-thirds don't. And in general, there's sometimes when we get in there, and you're really, really happy that you did the arthroscopic portion of the procedure. Either the labrum is huge and kind of a bucket handle or it's, it's with the cartilage is sort of folding down. And then sometimes you get in there and it's really not much to do. And it's a quick look at it, shave a little bit and leave. So I still think the question is exactly in who, and maybe Jeff Neppel has an opinion on this too, but who do you do it in such that we now have a prospective study going on to get this answer? And I still think it's a bit subjective, but in general, like I said, either we're picking the right ones to do it on so it doesn't matter, or in the end, for most people, it might not make a difference, but finding out who it does, we need to know. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Dr. Neppel, I'm going to put you on the spot. I know this wasn't your study, but uh, Dr. Singh did throw it your way, and I know you wanted to talk about this study a little bit too. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think this is a great thing we certainly need to learn more about. I think right now you have some centers that don't use much arthroscopy at all, some centers that are now scoping every PAO, and then a lot of centers, kind of like Ernie talked as well as here with John Cloacy, that we tend to scope selectively. But it's really going to take these studies, a nice prospective randomized study ongoing in Anchor uh, as well that'll give great evidence. I think the thought that uh, hip arthroscopy is sort of a free shot isn't true either. I think anytime you enter the joint, there's some risk of adhesions and things like that. So you're balancing that risk with the ability to pick up those more severe uh, labral pathologies. So we treat it very similar to what uh, Ernie describes, and it's probably 40 to 50% of PAOs currently. 
What do you guys think about uh, doing the, I guess, the label repair open while you're in there versus doing it with a scope? We haven't. I, I bet there's probably a technical way to do it safely. I've had to go back on some open surgeries for FAI that had them done without arthroscopy and found a couple anchors in the joints. So I think it can be done. I mean, the procedure for my colleagues that are sports medicine surgeons that do this all the time and hip preservation that do it all the time, they, they can do the scope part with just the labral work fairly quickly and easily. We do the osteochondroplasty open. And if they do the scope, the capsule is really easy to open. So one thing that's important to note in our series, all the osteochondroplasties, when there's a cam lesion, were done open, not arthroscopically. Yeah, I think that's a great comment that if anybody's uh, starting to dabble with adding hip arthroscopy with PAOs, for arthroscopists, these can be a little bit tricky labrums to repair. The labrum's very large, can be a little bit difficult to access. So you got to be kind of prepared for what you're dealing with. But we certainly get a better view than you would get uh, trying to do it open, I think, is great for the osteoplasty, but very hard for pulling some traction to figure out what's going on with the labrum. So the one thing I want to bring about why we did this study is as hip preservation expands, it's not just deformity surgery to prevent arthrosis anymore. It's also a surgery to help pain and function, which we've sort of changed because people come in with maybe FAI, maybe DDH, and we're trying to decide what's causing their symptoms. And so I wanted to see of the patients that we see, are there factors in those that don't get better? Because certainly we would change our discussion with them or avoid surgery in them or talk about expectations. So my goal after sort of 10 years of doing it at our institution was who is not getting better? My thought was maybe old patients or people with anxiety, depressive disorders or prior surgery or version abnormalities. And what we found in the end, there really wasn't a consistent factor that you could place your finger on except those that required ipsilateral surgery in the long run, as you would expect. And that was about 3.7% of the patients and five of them had arthroscopy and three had a femoral derotation osteotomy for excessive antiversion. So the, the one thing is I tell patients is you really have to be independent. Certainly in our group and probably in Jeff Neppel's group, we pre-selected the group based on certain preoperative discussions and indications and expectations to sort of tilt it in our favor. Like we won't do tonus two surgeries in older people, or if they have extreme version abnormalities, maybe we'll add that as a part of the procedure. So if you do that and spend your time and, and really decide who needs what, I think we can lessen the chance of one factor leading to failure. In that vein, Dr. Singh, can you talk a little bit about, you said mental health didn't really make a difference. How are you measuring that? And that played no role. Are you still looking at that and measuring that? We are. It actually made a difference in year one. So we looked at it by year. In year one, mental health played a difference. And although it wasn't statistically significant, age and prior surgery may have trended towards making a difference in year one, but it didn't in year two. So sometimes with mental health, it just takes a little longer for some of these patients to get over the hump and or the pain and discomfort they have in rehab in year one might be more bothersome to them than over time when they get more confidence in what they can do with their hip. How did you measure mental health? Oh, good question. So anything in the intake, whether they are on medicines or say they have anxiety and depression. So it's through Epic chart. When they come in, we put it in the spreadsheet. We did not do, as some people do, a catastrophizing score or specific mental health studies, which would probably maybe highlight more or less of it. 
So it was more just if it's in the medical record, you can get further into it by doing other things that they've done at Scottish Rite Hospital, where maybe the, the numbers would be higher. But we spend a lot of time talking about that in our preoperative visits to find out if they are burdened by any of these things. One more question for you on this line. Have you looked at this data relative to the PASS scores or patient acceptable symptom state? One of the interesting things is that patients who are very severely affected have a long ways to go to reach MCID versus that patient with mild symptoms and is maybe highly athletic doesn't have as far to go so that you get lower patients reaching uh, MCID, higher patients more likely to reach PASS based on pre-op. Have you looked at it that way? I'd be curious if you find the same things or not. Yeah, so when we broke it down, we broke it down into those that achieved MCID, PASS, and SCB, which is a substantial clinical benefit. And we used institutional anchor-based data. So our MCID for Harris HIP score and for IHOT were higher than those of prior published data. So for example, it was 9.6 on Harris HIP score and 22.9 for IHOT, which is a double of hip arthroscopy values. And for substantial clinical benefit, it was in the 30s and 40s. And PASS was like in the, around 68 or 70. So we looked at those as well. And understand substantial clinical benefit, if somebody has a Harris HIP score of 75 pre-op, they may not reach it because if they hit 100, they still may not get it. So there is some ceiling effect built into that. And what we found was the MCID was 85% around at one and two years for Harris, but it lowered at IHOP because the, the delta was higher. And that may be more HIP specific. And we looked at PASS and substantial clinical benefit. Those numbers were a little lower. So we looked at them all and we could not find any specific factor in achieving substantial benefit versus minimal clinical benefit. Again, that changed the two. And, and finally, what at one point, the statistician said, you keep mining for things to find differences that I can't find. Yeah, I think that's a great approach to really look at it both ways, because that's still one of the challenges we can't agree upon what success is in hip preservation surgery these days. Yeah, and as a final point, because I think I'm going to lose you here in a sec, we know a certain like 11 to 15% or 11% really did not get better in any metric. And we know 50% really got better. And so that leaves the other people where expectations is critical, where you say, you're going to get improvement, but you still may have some symptoms. And I think that's the group that we want to try to lessen over time and get them into the substantial benefit. But I think that just goes with surgery on pain and dysfunction. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I think that's a great pathway to understanding uh, these surgeries so much better. Dr. Sink, if I can ask one quick question before we lose you. So you and some of the other leaders in the field are very facile with the open surgeries and the hip scopes. There's lots of people across the country who are very good at one or the other, but not necessarily both. Um, I know the randomized trial is going on to determine who needs hip scopes and who doesn't. What would you tell sort of the, you know, the community doctor isn't the right word, but, you know, the, the hip preservationist or the arthroscopist who's not necessarily well-versed in both of those techniques right now, should people be doing lots of PAOs with a partner who does scopes or should people be doing PAOs and then just telling patients they may need a scope afterwards if symptoms persist or should people not do PAOs if they don't have someone available who can do a scope with them? Well, I, I think if you... If you're not a facile yet with the hip arthroscopy and you don't have a partner, I think just doing a PAO alone is fine because we don't know the benefit 
of what a hip arthroscopy adds yet at this point, and hopefully the prospective study will do it. So they shouldn't be felt as getting worse treatment if it's just the PAO. For us personally, I, have, I work as a team with hip arthroscopists. They like to be involved. They refer the patients. They find it interesting to, to look in these dysplastic hips. So we team up that way. And there was no reason for me to get through the learning curve of the hip arthroscopy because I have four or five experts that do it. So that's how we do it at our center. But I know at WashU, you know, they do both. If you're facile at it or you're through the learning curve, you can decide or somebody like iResults does both. It just depends on your institution. But I don't want people to feel like if you don't have a hip arthroscopist there or you're not good at it, I still think doing the PAO is the biggest important part of the procedure. And, and I would say there's probably a certain percentage that will go back for hip arthroscopy and you can confer it, but it's the minority. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for making time. I know uh, you had a lot going on, didn't squeezing us in uh, on your way home to the family. Thank you very well, much. Thank you. I look forward to seeing everybody. Next up, we've got an abstract by Dr. Neppel. This one is entitled Intermediate Term Results of combined surgical dislocation and PAO for complex Perthes deformities, can we save the hip? So in this case, the authors looked at 32 hips with Perthes affecting both the acetabulum and proximal femur who were treated with combined surgical dislocation and PAO. Average follow-up was eight years. Minimum follow-up was five years. Four hips went on to total hips, uh, which means 87% were preserved. So among that 87%, the patient reported outcomes were generally good. For example, the Harris hip scores improved significantly, and this improvement was maintained until final follow-up. So the authors conclude that these combined surgical dislocation PAO surgeries are successful in Perthes patients in correcting the deformity, improving the pain and function, and preserving the joint for at least five years, uh, even in these complex hips. So with that, over to you, Dr. Goldstein. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Neppel. So I have a few questions for you. Can you talk a little bit about which patients with post-birthdays deformity underwent these procedures and how you guys decide? Yeah, I think that's uh, maybe the most critical decision, especially when to add a PAO. So in general, with significant residual per these deformities at WashU, we've treated these with relatively comprehensive corrections. So surgical dislocation with head neck reshaping, which is often fairly extensive, uh, trochanteric advancement with relative femoral neck lengthening. Uh, so my colleagues here, John Cloacy, Perry Scheneker, have been doing this for a long time, and that's part of mining this uh, nice group that's formed over time. The more complex decision then comes into when to do a PAO. The traditional radiographic measures of dysplasia are thrown off by the uh, head deformity in Perthes, so we lose our lateral center edge as a meaningful marker. I think inclination is probably our best radiographic measure. So we have a pretty good sense going into one of these procedures if we think we're going to do a PAO or not, but it's ultimately based on intraoperative decisions. So to do a PAO, we generally want a very healthy joint. Uh, Sometimes individuals in their 20s or 30s can start to have a lot of cartilage disease and perthes, and that's probably not an ideal hip for a PAO. If their joint is healthy, then we're looking for confirmation of intraoperative instability, and that can be an extension, external rotation, kind of anteriorly, uh, mid-flexion, and then inflection, kind of lateral and posteriorly. Uh, So we're kind of making the ultimate decision based on an intraoperative exam. Often these hips are fairly unstable, that these are some of the most complex things we deal with with the 
combination of impingement and instability and taking one thing away on roofs, the next level of it, that uh, this is a selected subgroup. I think maybe about 40% of all surgical dislocations um, had a PAO in our cohort during this study period. And who is getting the surgical dislocations in the first place? Are you basing it on pain, gait abnormalities? And we've all seen those ugly post-perthes x-rays where the patient is doing fine. So yeah, so, so these are all, that's a good point, that many hips we, without previous surgery certainly have a lot in our uh, series uh, treated art at uh, uh, Shriners and St. Louis Children's through Perry's experience with sort of a conservative approach to this, uh, that this kind of surgery is definitely a last resort that they've exhausted all kinds of measures. Many of these patients are very active through high school playing sports and things, and it only eventually becomes a major problem for these. So all these have significant pain that hasn't gotten better with the typical non-operative treatment uh, regimen. And then I think once you're kind of to the point of thinking about surgery, it's coming up with the uh, optimal correction. And in the setting of a lot of deformity, it's generally the surgical dislocation is sort of the uh, primary means to start. Did you guys look at gait improvement at all? Um, yeah, that's a good point. I don't think we have detailed gait assessment uh, in this cohort. We do have kind of subjective improvements um, in limp and those kind of things uh, over time, which is generally improved in, in many, but not all patients. And then I think the one of the biggest challenges in this group is, is this large combined procedure, combining a surgical dislocation and a PAO, certainly a lot of surgery that in our center, it seems to be uh, very safe in the setting of surgeons who do these kind of procedures routinely, that patient it is nice. This is a big recovery either way to get it all done in one, uh, one sitting. How long does it usually take to do both of those and how do you technically do it? Uh, I assume you guys are going to go lateral and then you flip them supine or, and then what are you doing postoperatively for them? These procedures, uh, we start out lateral uh, doing surgical dislocation. If we proceed with a PAO, we would then uh, turn to supine and full reprep and drape. I'd say this is a probably a five-hour procedure on average um, in expert hands as far as keeping moving through this. Postoperatively, typically uh, not major things other than weight-bearing restriction. Occasionally in a, in a more tenuous hip, we might brace them with a Newport-type brace or something like that, uh, but typically just uh, uh, weight-bearing protection while that trochanter uh, as well as the PAO is healing. And then for institutions that are not WashU, where this is not a five-hour surgery, any thoughts about staging? If you're going to stage, how far apart do you stage? And what do you do in between the two surgeries for the patient? Yeah, I think so. Other uh, groups out there have certainly published sort of a, a staged approach. Uh, I mean, I think the challenge is knowing uh, whether you need the PIO or not. If it's going to be a separate sitting, you might maybe have a a higher threshold for uh, when you really want that PAO. I think it's it's going to be a long recovery anyway that I would tend to kind of keep them closer together rather than putting them too far apart because it's really going to lengthen uh, the period. In general, you mean once you're with your PAO, your incisions are, are different, everything, so you're kind of protected from those that I think some centers have, have spread them out of a few weeks. I think waiting a few months is just going to be really rough on the patient if the plan is to do both. 
Are any of these patients ever uh, ever requiring a uh, allograft to the head? Do you have any with pretty focal uh, AVN where you've got to do any cartilage restoration during the dislocation? Yeah, so I think in per these we see sort of the full spectrum. So the most severe, a couple patients in the series weren't included who had femoral head reductions for really that really bad central fragment. More common than that, we see these kind of residual OCDs uh, that can sometimes be uh, unstable, sometimes are stable. We've uh, utilized autograph plugs from the head, even going to the uh, ipsilateral knee in the lateral position isn't too too hard to do. Allografts are just really tough in the hip because it's hard to predict how bad that cartilage is going to be and having something available, you're sort of committed to that round and hip allografts are really hard to get in a timely fashion as well. So we've generally, with a big per these had uh, adequate tissue to kind of put plugs and had great experience with that. In some cases, fixing OCDs with screws. So usually autographed or, or sort of fixation works out okay. Let's say you've got a patient in there, you're considering doing a PAO on after you're doing your dislocation. You know, sometimes, or most of the time, the head is not very round anymore. And sometimes the acetabulum has sort of shaped itself something other than around and almost fits the head as it is. Is there any concern that if you bring the head over the top, that sort of you've made this now a somewhat incongruous joint? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't maybe touch on that in my other comment. Looking at congruency, I think, is is definitely kind of the final check and intraoperative decision-making. I think often it kind of goes the other way, that you've kind of shrunken down the large head, and we're worried that we've created more instability than we had in the first place. But certainly as you get into really severe ones, sometimes you can have that misshapen head that in per these in general, dysplasia has been a little bit predictive. If we look at our uh, intraoperative cartilage damage, the hips with some dysplasia often are healthier than those with kind of terrible impingement underlying. In general, often congruency hasn't stopped us from doing it because often kind of getting it over the top leads to a little better looking hip than what you might have after the dislocation in that setting. Great explanation. And we've got one more. Dr. Neppel, if you have time to hang out to discuss this one, I'm sure everyone would love to hear your opinion, but uh, no pressure. I know we're getting a little late in the evening. So next up is Dr. Chong's abstract, reliability and validity of assessment of leg calvae perthes disease hypoperfusion with perfusion MRI. It's a study uh, from the International Perthes Study Group. The authors looked at perfusion MRIs of Perthes hips and compared the results from HipVasc software, which automatically measures perfusion of the femoral head, to visual estimation from a group of surgeons who read the perfusion MRIs by eye. The authors found that estimating hypoperfusion of the femoral head by eye is comparable to the software and is probably good enough for clinical practice. However, the HipVasc software was slightly superior in certain cases, so it should be preferred for research. Over to you, Dr. Goldstein. Thank you. All right, Dr. Chong. So I have some questions for you. For people who are not members of the IPSG, can you talk a little bit about the HipVasc software, what it is, what it does? Yeah, so HipVasc, it was an in-house made program down at the Scottish Rite. Basically, it's it's a graphical analysis program. Basically, the MRI scans are loaded up onto the software. And, and Carter, you initially said automatically measured. It is not an automatically measuring thing, unfortunately. Uh, it takes still five to 10 minutes per study, and that's after you get going on a good clip. So you manually have to bound uh, the borders of the epiphysis and tell the computer where to measure. And then after you've done that, then you can analyze the post-contrast or the subtraction images and mark out the area of avascular necrosis so the computer knows where the area is where there's not vascularity. Then the computer then totals all the pixels up 
and based on the threshold of where that that avascularity is set, then spits out a number that tells you the avascular necrosis. So it's basically just a it's a computer assisted way of measuring on an MRI how much uh, hypovascularity there is on, on a femoral head. And then, can you talk a little bit about why we care about hypoperfusion? Sure. There's still a lot of things we need to know about birthies and. Part of the trouble is figuring out how to determine which are the really bad heads coming in. I mean, we know that the younger kids all do well, and we know that the older ones don't. We know that if you have total head uh, avascular necrosis, you're going to do probably worse than if you have just partial head. Um, and that might dictate the treatment in terms of how aggressive you're going to be. You know, we have people that range all the way from complete non-operatives to slash sort of adductor tenotomies and petri casts to people who are doing various osteotomies to people who are putting arthrodiastasis frames. And I'm sure there are other things out there too. So, and none of us can really tell any of our patients, this is what you should do for sure. This has been shown to be the best. And so this is in a sense, helping us move towards figuring out how to quantify how bad is the vascular necrosis of the head. Because x-rays are not the perfect way to know this. We can see an x-ray and it looked great, you know, one month and then several months later, all of a sudden it looks terrible. Uh, the IPSG group has done a lot of work with perfusion MRI to kind of get a better sense of how well we can measure the avascular necrosis kind of in the early stages and get a better sense of hopefully their prognosis. So this study is basically looking at how we can actually quantify that avascular necrosis in a way that everyone else can do it because HIPVASC is not available to anyone, nor do I wish upon anyone to have to learn how to use it. Rachel's just shaking her head because she was part of this group that was uh, in quote, volunteered to uh, participate in this study. Uh, and so we all spent uh, many hours down in the computer lab dungeon measuring MRIs for this study. I have PTSD from doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about how people do visual estimation? It's basically just as you normally would do. If, when we did the study, we basically just scrolled through the coronal scans on both the pre-contrast as well as the subtraction or the post-contrast uh, MRIs. And these are only done on the coronals, uh, whereas, uh, you know, in real life, you might be able to page through the axials and the coronals and the sagittals. Uh, here, in this case, only the coronals were available to everyone. But basically, everyone would just kind of scroll through on their own and just record a number of whatever they thought the vascular necrosis percentage was. And do you use percent hypoperfusion in your decision-making for that in-between age in your practice? At this point, we're still getting to the point that not everyone is getting perfusion MRIs even. I certainly only have a few so far. And so certainly if we get an MRI and you get a sense that someone has a lot of avascular necrosis, I would probably lean towards doing something. Again, it really just depends on the parents and the family too. Some of them, depending on whether you think they'll follow weight-bearing restrictions, uh, depends on the range of motion. So I think there's still a lot of factors in play, but I think to me, if you know that there's a significant amount of avascular necrosis, it's probably going to lead me towards being a little bit more aggressive or at least have much more careful follow-up with them to make sure they don't just disappear and come back with a completely flat head. If you were going to look into your crystal ball and uh, or anyone could answer this question, you know, in 15, 20 years, what do you think we're going to be using perfusion MRIs for? Do you think they're going to have a major role in uh, Perthes management? Hard question. I think it's certainly helpful for just a more precise and more accurate sort of way of looking at it. You know, is our visual estimation good enough? Pretty much we've shown that it is. So we're saying almost in a sense that maybe you don't need to get these perfusion MRIs. The, the protocols to do that can be a little bit complicated to pass through your institution and getting the subtraction MRI is, is not easy. Uh, the kid has to sit completely still. Uh, and so I think 
we're finding that some of the sedated MRIs end up looking a lot better than the non-sedated ones. Because if you don't have the images line up pre and post contrast, then when you do subtraction, you get a lot of ghosting. And so your images are somewhat degraded. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the differences we're finding, is there a big difference between 60 and 70% or 70 and 80%? I think big chunks probably make a difference, but it's probably not going to make a huge difference whether we're just 5 or 10% off. And so I think what the study shows is that, yeah, visual estimation is probably going to be good enough for, for most of what we do. But perhaps as we try to quantify and get more exact numbers as to what percentage should we do surgery versus not, that's where HIPFAST and, and maybe some more careful estimation is going to be a little bit more helpful. Yeah, I think that's a great comment. That certainly uh, study groups like this and having large amounts of patients treated different ways with as much comprehensive data as possible is really the way that the field will change in the future, that certainly these MRIs or even even typical MRIs show you so much more than what you might have appreciated on, on x-ray, so that hopefully we'll know a lot more 15 years from now. Yeah, it would be nice. The problem is, is, is as Dr. Chong pointed out, these MRIs are not particularly helpful if the kids move at all. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever met a six-year-old boy, but they don't lay still for, these studies are long. The studies are super long. And so right now I have a hard time finding them super helpful. And unless we really start to show that perfusion MRIs give us enough more information that it's worth sedating kids for, I don't know how many people are going to be doing them long-term. Yeah, I agree. It's not something I want to wish on every Perthes patient that walks in the door. You know, currently the, the study group is trying to get that on almost every patient we operate, but that's because we need a baseline to operate from. Otherwise, all we have is a single x-ray, which you really can't tell how much avascular necrosis is in there. Not until like maybe way down the line when it all kind of displays itself. It's hard to do research when we don't even know what, what our baseline is. And do you think there's value in non-perfusion MRIs at this point? Certainly a lot easier to deal with. We get fancier and fancier MR uh, techniques over time for looking at subtle things. Maybe someday it'll be a better sequence. Yeah, I, the contrast is helpful, though, because it, it does kind of show you where, where you get into vascularity and perfusion a little bit better. But I think you can, you can probably glean most of the same information from a non-contrast as well. But I think, I think sometimes there are a few things that are avascular that sometimes don't show up as well as on a perfusion or, or just, a, just even a with or without contrast. You know, in our study, there were definitely some images that we that didn't qualify for subtraction, and we just looked at the post-contrast as well. So the yeah, subtraction is a great protocol, but it's not necessarily a must-have sort of thing. Yeah, that'd be a great study, too. You've been showing, is there enough of a difference to need it, uh, non-contrast versus contrast, and what you pick up a little bit, but is it uh, fine enough detail that, similar to what your study showed, maybe it's close enough? Yeah, would you like to participate and sit in the basement <laughs> for a few hours with us? <laughs> no, we just decided visual estimation is good enough we're good yeah all right well i think that is the uh, perfect conclusion thank you everyone for your time and uh, i hope there's still some stuff left to discuss on uh, subspecialty day this week and um safe travels to dallas thank you see you guys nice. in dallas. have a good one guys bye